You felt it. We've all felt it. It's a centerpiece of our culture these days, right? You go to the doctor and one of the first things that they ask you is how much stress are you under, right? And we all answer that question pretty much the same way, right? A lot. This modern world that we live in is stressful, but it's not more stressful than the caveman on the Serengeti running away from a predator, right? It's a, it's a different kind of stress that we experience these days. There's so much more psychological stress. But what really is stress? Because we talk about it in such general terms, right? We're stressed when our relationship is on the rocks. We're stressed when our bank account is overdrawn and we have to pay our bills. We're stressed when we're running late on a deadline for work or for school, whatever it is, right? What is this mysterious force that's affecting us the same way in all of these really different scenarios that we're a part of? And what is it about our body's response to these kind of general forces that produces these negative health, health outcomes that we're going to talk about? What is this doing to our brain, our ability to, to remember things, to make good decisions and all of these kind of things? And most importantly, I think, what is it that we have that we can use to control these different responses in our body? Because one thing I think that we're really going to hone in on, focus on in this episode is the superpower really that lies underneath this whole stress response. And that's the fact that we as humans have this incredible ability to control our physiology with our thoughts. And in a lot of respects, it's negative, but we're going to look kind of as we get through this episode, how we can kind of turn that on its head and use those same powers to kind of turn on the, the calming aspects of our nervous system too. Welcome to the social brain. I'm Andrew. And I'm Taylor. And this is a show where we dive into how the brain works. If you've ever wondered what's going on inside your mind, even the things that you're not even aware of, then this is the place where we can unpack that and really explore it. Yeah, this stress is such a huge topic. And obviously, like we all deal with this uh, on some level, some more than others, for sure. And we should just start like, okay, what are we even talking about when we talk about stress? You know, it's uh, it's a word that we use in so many different ways. Like, I'm totally stressed out about this deadline or, uh, you know, I'm feeling a little bit of stress this morning about uh, getting on this this call with Taylor. Um, what, are, what are all these like? What's the thing that unifies that with what Taylor was just talking about with, you know, being a caveman running across the Serengeti from a woolly mammoth, I, which yeah, they were around, right, at the same time as the, the caveman, I, I think. Uh, or, you know, for that matter, when you are doing something that's pleasantly stressful uh, in some way, like, you know, you are uh, playing some kind of sport. Maybe you, you like uh, rock climbing or something. There's some stress involved in that. But obviously, there's there's some differences to these things, but there's something that's bringing it all together. Right. And and we did touch on some of this in our last episode about anxiety. But today we're going to get a little bit more into some kind of the 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 basics of stress itself. So maybe, Taylor, you want to throw in a definition of, of stress? 
Yeah, I mean, there's there's kind of the the general definition that I mean, if you Google it, look for it, whatever, it's going to say that it's it's defined by the, this tension that we feel, right? It can be physical from something that we're encountering, like a threat. Uh, it can be emotional. It can be psychological. Uh, but in most cases, it's triggering these these physiological responses in our body that we're all pretty familiar with. We have this increased heart rate. Our chest gets tight, right? There's this whole cascade of things that are changing in our body, but what I really like and something we're going to kind of dive into and we look at like the history of stress, because this is a very new concept. It's only been around for like a hundred years. I was, there was this godfather of like the stress movement, Hans Selye, that really defined it as being this non-specific response to any demand placed upon the organism. It's anything that's throwing the body out of homeostasis. Right. And homeostasis, uh, for those of you that don't know, it's just it's our body being at kind of a set point. Right. We're at a certain temperature. We're at a certain kind of comfortability with our glucose levels, with our salt levels, all of these different things that are being monitored in our body. And stress is anything that's threatening to throw that out of balance. And our body's taking some kind of a response to kind of uh, get ahead of it. Right. And and just to kind of throw in there, it, it would make it makes sense that there's this cognitive component, this sort of mental component that goes along with being thrown out of homeostatic balance, because, you know, that's what your, your brain and your body are designed to do. They're, they're, we'll talk about more of the subtleties. We'll get into allostasis, which is a little bit more uh, complex than homeostasis and probably a more, a more accurate representation of what's actually happening in the body. But in general, yeah, if you're, you know, salt content in your bloodstream gets too high or too low, uh, just as one example, you would not only want to have a physiological reaction to that, right? The uh, changes where you're, you know, pulling salt out of the bloodstream in some way or something like that, <laughs> but also uh, a cognitive component to that where, oh, what do we, what does the organism need to do? What behaviors do we need to take to, to take care of this situation? But getting back to uh, the definition of stress, um, yeah, there's there's these physical and emotional and and um, you know mental psychological components that go along with it. So I think you mentioned it's it is anything that throw that places a demand on the system, on the body, on the the organism, um, and that's not necessarily negative, right? It could be it could be something that's yeah neutral like i was mentioning there's pleasant forms of stress as well yeah i mean there's a there's actually a quote from hans selye that i mentioned the, the kind of godfather of stress that said the only person that's not stressed is dead that we're even when we're sleeping we're still releasing adrenaline to kick in dreams and all of these kind of things right uh something that i really liked that you were getting at andrew was this this idea that you have to have this cognitive component to it because we are organisms that are navigating the external world. All of this stuff that's inside of our body, our heart, our lungs, our liver, all of this stuff can't see what's going on in the outside world. The only way that it knows what the organism is facing is when the brain is telling it what's happening, 
right? And so there's this intricate link between what's going on physiologically, all of these different things that are changing and what we're seeing, what we're hearing, what we're turning those kind of audio and visual perceptions into in terms of, is this a threat? Is this not a threat? Is this something that I should approach? Is this something I should avoid, right? And then those signals are turned into something completely different because something I say so much on this, on this podcast is that our body doesn't speak English, right? That you have these cognitive things happening that then turn into hormones, that turn into these things that have a very kind of, like we said, non-specific response in the body. And that's something we really want to highlight as we go through this is that stress is something that be, despite these things being really different, like everything that Andrew said, everything I said at the beginning, like our brain is doing the same thing for all of them, right? So there's some cognitive thing that's kicking a mechanism that's pulling a switch and starting the same thing, regardless of what it is. Yeah. And this is a good um, differentiator between stress and anxiety, right? Like in the last episode, we talked about anxiety being this kind of uh, response to a threat on the horizon that may or may not occur. And so that kind of defines anxiety as being a having a negative emotional component to it, right? A negative sort of uh, yeah. perception of what's going to happen, whereas stress can be much more um, neutral, right? So yeah, I don't want to beat a dead horse, but just wanted to throw that in because I think <laughs> those two terms can be really hard to differentiate. Yeah. And something interesting too, like uh, Andrew's kind of pointing out that there's positive forms of stress. Uh, it was actually called eustress when this whole thing started. Uh, but we call it stimulation, right? It's something that we actively search for in our environment. We, there, I not we, not everybody, but lots of people go to scary movies because they enjoy that stimulation of kicking that stress response in and riding that wave, right? We, we do extreme sports. We, we ride on this wave of adrenaline, right? Those are things that we're taking advantage of the stress response, but from a different psychological perspective. And really kind of comparing these two approaches to stress is really important when we start to think about how to contextualize why some people are really affected by stress health-wise and some people aren't. And a lot of it is that approach to how we're interpreting the stress response, how we're after the scary movie's over, we're able to say, look, I'm not in danger, right? It's I can turn all of this off. I can calm. I can relax. Uh, that's a big difference in the people that that feel like they're in that stress just like all the time and they're never getting the signal to turn it off. And that's what really kicks a lot of these negative kind of consequences into gear. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned the term you stress. And I, I really love that term because uh, like if people are hearing this, it's EU stress, E-U-S-T-R-E-S-S. -S. So like you as in euphoria. Um, so good stress yeah. versus distress. So you stress and distress. I, I kind of, I do like <laughs> using those terms too. Um, so, okay. So we're kind of, we've talked about it's, it's this neutral um, sort of non-specific uh, response of the body and the brain. Maybe we should get into what actually is that physiological neurophysiological response. Um, and uh, yeah. So, do you, where do you want to start with that, Taylor? I, the history of this concept is actually fascinating. Like it, it really is amazing that stress is such a just like prevalent word used in our society today with it only being like it was discovered in 1936. Like that's when it was proposed. 
And it was actually proposed with a lot of flack. People were like, this is ridiculous. This can't be true. Because a lot of what was happening in kind of the medical sciences was we had doctors that were proving that the body had very specific responses for very specific circumstances, right? I shiver when I'm cold. I sweat when I'm hot. The body has specific things that it's figured out to solve certain problems. And along comes this guy, Hans Selye, that's like, no, there's this like general thing that happens for all of these different stressors. And the reason he kind of came to this conclusion was like by accident. There's uh, Robert Sapolsky tells this story really well. A lot of this stuff was from like zebras don't get ulcers uh, and like some of the, the courses that he teaches. Uh, but Hans Selye was terrible at handling rats. He was, he was someone that was doing experiments with rats and he was trying to test what some type of compound was going to do to this rat's physiology. And he's injecting all of these rats, but he's dropping them and they're running and he's trying to find them. And they're like, they're going through this just like torment every day for him to try to do these experiments. And at the end of it all, he ends up kind of doing everything that he needed to and dissecting the rats. And he found that all of these rats had ulcers that he had been injecting. And he's like, this is amazing. This, this compound, it causes ulcers. But then he had a control group that wasn't getting the compound and all of them had ulcers too. And so he was like, oh, you know what? Maybe it's just that I am tormenting the hell out of these rats. And that's why they all have ulcers. And then he spent his entire career torturing rats, which is really sad. But he did all of these nonspecific things to them. He would put them like in cages down in the boiler room or up on top of the roof. He would do like shocks versus not shocks, put them in isolated environments versus not isolated environments. All of these different things that caused very similar health outcomes at the end. And he started to propose like, look, the body is doing something very similar in all of these circumstances when the body feels like it's under threat. And it's something that if left unchecked, if chronic, can produce these really negative health, health outcomes. Yeah, that is such a great story. Yeah, the um, and and I think it's worth thinking about because you mentioned uh, he he was kind of a maverick in saying that there would be this non-specific uh, response to any kind of uh, stressor, and um, and it's worth thinking about what is the kind of evolutionary logic, what's the biology yeah. behind. Um, what's going on. And one way to think about this is, you know, if you're under stress, if you're, if you're threatened in some way, or you have to do something important for your survival, um, you have to allocate energy. You have to allocate resources yeah. to that thing, to, to the muscles that are involved in the running, to your heart, to your lungs, to be able to, you know, pump blood and oxygen throughout your system. And you can't be spending resources and energy at the same time on what we can think of as long-term building projects, right? So when it comes to digestion or um, even, you know, uh, reproductive processes or uh, immune, uh, immune processes and many others, those are things that take a lot of energy, a lot of resources. And, you know, th there's no free lunch in the brain. We have a certain number of resources and energy that we can devote to any given project at a time. And so if you're devoting all this, you know, uh, blood sugar and energy to running, to getting away, 
uh, from this stressor, then at the same time, you can't be digesting the meal you just ate. And that's like a fundamental thing about stress physiology is that there's this shift from the sympathetic or sorry, the parasympathetic nervous system, which is involved in those resting, digesting processes, um, and toward the sympathetic nervous system, which is this branch of the nervous system that's involved in, uh, you know, we can think of it as increasing muscle tone, uh, kind of jacking up heart rate, doing all these things that uh, are involved in getting away from from uh, a, a threat or doing any given thing. And I'm reaching over here because I just want to, I know that we both, uh, or you already mentioned Robert Sapolsky, but I just wanted to show this book. If anybody's interested in going really deep into stress, stress-related diseases, um, this is an amazing book, Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers by Robert Sapolsky. And that title is is really telling uh, because what we're kind of paving the way towards is the fact that this stress response evolved for acute stress. And by acute, I mean immediate, something that was happening right now, right? You have a gazelle that's being chased by uh, a cheetah or whatever it is, right? Uh, that is three minutes of absolute terror that that thing is going through that it is having to, like like Andrew was saying, allocate resources in very different ways in order to get away from that cheetah to escape. But then after that three minutes, when it's safe and the cheetah's gone, the stress response is supposed to turn back off. And that's kind of where we're getting to is the reason why zebras don't get ulcers is because they turn the stress response off. And the reason why we get ulcers is because we don't. Now, this is one of my absolute favorite things to think about what Andrew was was just kind of highlighting is this this balancing act uh, and it really kind of the reason my channel is called the cellular republic it's something I've talked a lot about on this show is I see the brain as being kind of this governmental force in biology that it's having to make these decisions about where to send energy at the expense of one group of cells or the other right so if I need to run away like Andrew said, I can't be putting a ton of energy into my gut to try to digest that food and save it, right? If I might die in three minutes, why am I going to save a bunch of sugar for later, right? I need to mobilize that sugar. I need it in my bloodstream. I need it going to my, my legs so that I can run away, so that I can do whatever I need to do. And it's this, this fundamental like economics game that's going on. And the brain is right at the center of that. And what's really really fascinating about being human is that we have the ability to psychologically manipulate that balancing act, right? To shift the balance between, like Andrew was saying, between parasympathetic and sympathetic. And you have parasympathetic is, is the calm. It's the relax. It's, it's when I'm sitting there and I feel okay in my body and I can just, I mean, imagine an animal that's out on the Serengeti, right? When it feels like there's no predators around, it can just sit and it can eat and it can lay down in the shade and it can rest and it can just let its body recover and build and prepare for the future. But then as soon as that threat's there, we need to switch all of that crap off and we need to get running, right? We need to just mobilize all of that stuff, break down these building projects and go. Yeah. And that's great. Like we're looking at kind of the two extremes, right? The full on parasympathetic activation or full-on sympathetic activation. But I do think it's important to keep in mind that these are, um, yeah. I think Andrew Huberman described it as like, it's like a seesaw. 
you know, it's never really fully um, to one side or the other. It, not, I shouldn't say that. It most often yeah. isn't fully to one side or the other. So like when you're sitting in a meeting at work or something and you have to be on point, but you're not like your heart isn't like going, you know, 200 beats per minute. And you're like, so there's, there's a, a balance between relaxation and, uh, you know, I don't know, stress, I guess, or full on, Mm -hmm. um, physiological sympathetic activation. Um, yeah. So too, I just want to, I wanted to say something there real quick, because the other really important distinction there with what you're saying, it's not, it's not all this and it's not all that. There's also a lot of continuous nature to it, right? You can have, you can have a lot of sympathetic tone, but I am like scared to death and I'm running from that thing. I have a ton of sympathetic tone, right? I'm mobilizing everything to escape. But then there's also stressors that it's just like, oh man, I'm not going to hit my deadline. I'm still turning it on, but I'm not turning it on, like run away for my life, turn it on. Right. And there's also every second we're, we're bouncing back between them. We'll kind of talk about heart stuff in a minute, but uh, every time you breathe in, you're activating the sympathetic nervous system. Your heart beats a little faster. And every time you breathe out, you're activating the parasympathetic nervous system and your heart beats a little slower. And you can actually see this on on electrocardiograms that it's what's called heart rate variability, that you see it speeds up and then it slows down and it speeds up. And there's actually, it's actually a measure when that is not variable, it's actually an indicator of someone experiencing a lot of stress, that the sympathetic is just on all the time and it's not allowing it to calm down. And so it's just elevated all the time. That's a great point because it kind of allows us to inject a little bit of a stress management right here, just to... A little technique is uh, when you're feeling overly stressed, one thing you can do is extend your out breaths and slow your breathing, but extend those out breaths longer than the the inhalations. Um, anyway, we'll get more into coping strategies and things near, <laughs> closer to the end. But um, yeah, we're still kind of on this physiology. We're talking about what, what so we mentioned earlier the, um, the ulcers, right? And is it I think one thing we should mention is when it comes to stress-related diseases, uh, stress typically itself isn't causing these diseases, right? It's not that stress is somehow, you know, like a pathogen that's creating ulcers in your body or um, heart disease or whatever it may be. It's more like a uh, an accelerant, like it, it um, makes you more vulnerable to these types of diseases because of the thing we were talking about earlier, where you are turning down those long-term building projects, those immune processes and that digestive, those digestive processes, basically you're, you're turning down those, what you could think of as like healing processes. And uh, then that itself just makes you more vulnerable. That's kind of like the basics of of it, obviously it's a lot more complicated when you get into the molecular physiology and things like that. But, but as a uh, first pass, I feel like that's a great way to think about it. Robert Sapolsky has this, this great way that he describes kind of the difference between humans and other mammals in terms of we as humans aren't worried about these giant parasites in our liver, right? We're not worried about just like falling dead one day because of smallpox uh, anymore. Right. 
uh, it, we're not dying from acute serious disease. And again, acute just means immediate, right? We're not experiencing something, drinking some bad water on the Serengeti and then dropping dead the next day. The way that we're dying is slowly over time. And that's really what Andrew's kind of painting the picture of is that what these stress processes are doing are wearing down the sewers and the tunnels mm -hmm. and the the different kind of forces that are at play, right? If we if we have the immune system as like the police force, we're not reinvesting and building it back up, right? We're we're doing bad management from like a governmental perspective of sending the resources where they need to go. And I don't want to say bad, but maybe unhealthy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and there is this like nuance to it where the acute stress sometimes enhances some of these processes, but then the chronic stress, the ongoing stress really wears them down. So that's something I, I think is also kind of a theme in that book, Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers and what Robert Sapolsky talks about generally, like, um, you know, with, with immunology, with our immune system, the acute stress can enhance some of the immune processes, but then as time goes on, it, it takes a toll on our immune system. Um, and again, there's, there's a lot of nuance here, but I uh, just wanted to like <laughs> throw that in there. Um, so what about, what about the, the actual physiological, like the health effects that we're alluding to, you know, what are some of these things and why does stress contribute to some diseases? How, yeah. So maybe what do you want to start with there? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, as Andrew hinted at the very beginning of this episode, this is a giant topic, right? People are spending their entire careers trying to figure out what's going on physiologically from a lot of these things. Uh, we decided in this episode to focus on some of the big ones because they're some of the biggest killers in our society around the world. Uh, and the first one is heart disease. Heart disease is the number one killer worldwide. And it, there's a really big reason why we're so susceptible to heart disease with high stress, right? Put into perspective what's going on when I'm stressed. If I need to allocate resources quickly, right? I need to break everything down. I need to send stuff to my muscles. I need to divert stuff away from my gut. All of these things that requires faster blood flow. Faster blood flow means elevated heart rate, right? Or pumping it through. It means uh, that our blood vessels are actually dilating to let that blood flow faster and uh, but one of the things that is really important to, to kind of take account of is that we have this cardiovascular system that's fractal in nature. Uh, Andrew had an interview with someone who was fascinating that had like spent his career talking about how amazing our bo body is in terms of like these fractal designs, which and fractal just means that they they continually split. So our veins have what are called bifurcation sites where the one vein splits into two and then those two split into two and then two and then two and then two uh, until you get to these really small capillaries that are actually feeding the cells. But what, what happens if you kind of picture a river, right? And you have this divide in the river. If that river is flowing really, really hard, the place that's going to get hit the hardest is right where that thing splits. And this is what happens all the time when we have elevated heart rate all the time is that those bifurcation sites just get slammed with blood and it causes inflammation in those sites. Yeah. And, and the heart itself, right. Um, also has a similar, uh, 
impact due to this this increased blood pressure. Um, and I guess should we we could talk a little bit about some of the the like physiology, the the neurophysiology of what's going on here, right? So when you you have this yeah. stress response, you are release. I'm not going to go into all the the steps of the the molecular cascade and everything, but you've yeah, got yeah. this release of hormones, basically. Well, release of adrenaline uh, from the the uh, adrenal glands, and then that. Uh, causes a eventually basically a release of cortisol of glucocorticoids these stress hormones yeah. so um if you want to picture some of the uh what's happening here is you've got these stress hormones going through the bloodstream and they're releasing glucose from storage sites in the body so so mobilizing uh sugar into the bloodstream. And, uh, I just wanted to kind of throw that in there. I realized we hadn't even talked about any of the, the, uh, <laughs> molecules yet. And I always feel like those are an yeah, important yeah. piece of the puzzle, but yeah. No. And I, I think, uh, and this is going to transition into metabolism because that's, I think one of the biggest things that we, we really need to paint the picture of is, is what Andrew is getting to. And something that he's kind of painting right now is that when you're in these really stressed situations, we're releasing all of these fats and sugars into the bloodstream because those are what are used as fuel for energy for our muscles to be able to do the things that they're doing. But all of these things that are being released into the bloodstream when we're stressed are also the things that get stuck in inflammation sites in those spots in the veins that I was talking about that get hammered by blood flow. So you have these bifurcation sites in the cardiovascular system that are just getting hammered over and over and over again because your elevated heart rate, you're just constantly elevated. And now you're pumping all of this stuff, this sticky stuff into the bloodstream at the same time. And those sites are where that stuff sticks to. And now you have this kind of circular thing happening where now it's actually making the problem even worse because as that stuff gets glommed up, it's actually increasing the pressure of the blood, which is causing more damage, right? And so it's this cascading spiral that you end up in where it just keeps kind of compounding on itself and getting worse. And so I think we can kind of lead into metabolism though, because you're right, the, the glucose stuff is really fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I just want to clarify kind of what, what I was just saying, uh, stumbling through the, the physiology of the, uh, the stress <laughs> response. I just want to read a quote from, um, from why zebras don't get ulcers because it, it just kind of encapsulates real quickly, like how this really works. So basically he says, um, a stressor is sensed or anticipated in the brain, which triggers the release of CRH. That's Corticotropin releasing, releasing hormone um, and related hormones by the hypothalamus, which is a, a part of the brain, kind of near the near the brainstem, um, just above it. Um, and these hormones enter the circulatory system, linking the hypothalamus and the anterior pituitary. And the anterior pituitary is like just connected to the hypothalamus. It's right next to it. And that causes the release of another hormone called ACTH. I won't even explain what that stands for <laughs> by the pituitary. And then that hormone enters the general circulation and triggers the release of glucocorticoids by the adrenal gland. So 
I just want to clarify what I was saying before because I, I feel like I <laughs> I uh, did not say it correctly in the beginning. No, and that's that's a great lead in because what we really want to paint the picture of is that a lot of what we've been describing in terms of energy allocation, that's what this whole process is about, right? It's about moving our energy storage around. Uh, and there's two things that we're balancing all the time. On the one hand, we want to plan for the future. We want to store stuff like we eat, we eat food and we have excess and our body puts all of those excess pieces together into these things like glycogen and fatty acid or fat cells and all of these kind of things. Uh, and then and then stores them so that if we need energy, it's there. Right. And insulin is what does this. Insulin is what the body releases when there's excess sugar in our blood that then tells the body we have a bunch of sugar. Let's collect it all and let's save it and store it. Right. And this is why I love this, like this metaphor of like a society. Right. You think of like these tribal societies and they were either like at peace and they were they were building buildings and they were furthering their 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 reach they're finding new resources all of these kind of things uh or they were at war and when they're at war they're not spending money and all of their resources building buildings now they're feeding their warriors right and that's where most of the energy is going but if they're at war all the time and they're not feeding the people that are actually maintaining the the roads and the sewers and all of that kind of stuff then it all starts to fall apart right but what is the opposite of insulin is what Andrew was just hinting at, which is glucocorticoids. And this is like cortisol. This is the stress hormone. And the name glucocorticoid refers to the fact that it's breaking down the glucose stores. And so you have insulin that's like, we need to save this. We need to store it. And then the stress response is saying, no, we need to break all of that down and we need to mobilize it. And that's kind of this, this dance that we're constantly playing of deciding, like, am I in danger? Am I going to survive the next five minutes? Or should I plan for the next 10 years? Right. Yeah. And, and then, as you mentioned, uh, insulin is this hormone that's promoting storage, right, of, uh, of sugar, whereas um, glucocorticoids are doing the opposite. And then glucocorticoids can lead to um, I can't remember the name for it, but it's basically a form of, of diabetes because it's, it's suppressing that insulin production. Yeah. So it's not, and, and there's, there's another one, there's another mechanism that it can do it by, but basically, yeah, you are over, uh, over activating these glucocorticoids, which is suppressing this insulin production and making it more difficult to store that uh, sugar for, for later use. Um, so what, you know, what kind of problems does this lead to? You know, it leads to, like I said, there, diabetes is one, um, one uh, stress is a risk factor for developing, uh, what is it type? I can't remember which type of diabetes it is. Type two. But type so two it's not diabetes. juvenile diabetes. Right. So juvenile diabetes right. is when you're not producing enough insulin. And so you're actually not storing anything at all. But with the other type of diabetes that stress really exasperates is that it's it's not that we don't have enough insulin. It's that we're becoming resistant to the insulin and the insulin. So we're, we're just stressed all the time and we're, our body is giving us the signal that we need to store things. But the stress response is saying, no, we don't need to store things. We just need to constantly have these things kind of churning through our bloodstream. 
And so instead of saving all of these things in fat cells, it's just all just circulating through our blood. And this gets back to what we were talking about with like heart disease, where now all of this stuff is just glomming up our blood, our, our veins and our arteries and all of that kind of stuff. Uh, so, I mean, we just painted a picture of two of like the biggest killers of humans right now. I mean, this type of diabetes is set to become one of the biggest killers in the next 10 years because of our diet, because of the lifestyle, the stress, and all of these things that, that are really kind of making it prevalent today. Yeah. And, and let's keep going down this dark road of what's, what's so bad about <laughs> stress. <laughs> so, um, immunity, right? We mentioned that immune process, immune, the immune system, like generally is one of these long-term building projects that gets put on hold when we are experiencing stress, especially chronic stress. Um, so you can imagine that chronic stress makes you more susceptible to infectious diseases. Um, so like, I think just as first pass, that makes a lot of sense, but there's also this, uh, this nuance I mentioned earlier that acute stress can actually increase the immune response. And that makes sense because, you know, you imagine you're uh, running for your life, you know, from some predator or something, uh, you might sustain damage. You likely will sustain some damage while you're undergoing that stress response. And so amping up the immune system right after an acute stressor makes sense for, okay, we got to make sure that there's not going to be, uh, you know, and there's now, well, there's now an increased risk of infection. So now we got to make sure that uh, we kind of wall off the system from this increased risk. Mm -hmm. But as it goes on, as chronic stress goes on and on, it suppresses immune function. And that is an interesting feature of how, like, when it's just part of this general idea that when we have this stress response on for too long, it is wearing down these systems. But do you want to talk about how that actually works? Yeah, uh, it's so I mean, this is this is where the analogy is really cool, right? So imagine you're at war, you're this tribal society, uh, you've just been attacked, you have this immediate response, right? You send out your your white blood cells, you, you're like, go protect me. Uh, but when you're at war, you are not investing in training new white blood cells to go out and take the place of the old ones that are kind of being used in this kind of battle for saving the wound or whatever it is, right? Um, and so the idea is that with acute stress, you have this immediate immune response. You release all of this stuff, you have white blood cells and killer cells and all of these things that are going out to fight it. Immune system is super, super nuanced and complex. But general idea is that over time, you're not reinvesting and building it back up. And that's kind of the overarching theme with a lot of this, this stress stuff is that we're not investing in the rebuilding process. We're just throwing everything we can at this current moment. And we're just forgetting about the fact that in order to maintain that, we need to be resting and digesting and repairing and rebuilding. And you see this too with suppression of growth hormone. When we're stressed, we're not producing growth hormone. And you actually see a lot of cases of people from war zones, uh, really stressful environments from trauma and all of these kind of things that are on average like two to three inches shorter than other people because they're not they're not building. Right. It's like back to the analogy. They're not building new buildings. They're out fighting. Right. Uh, and the same with sexual reproduction. We're it's like 
I don't need to worry about kind of creating a new generation of me when I don't know if I'm going to survive the next five minutes. And so you see this downregulation of testosterone, of gonad production, of all of these things that are happening in the reproduction system as well. Yeah. So just generally like these long-term projects, these important uh, things for long-term health and reproduction get put on hold, especially when we're talking about chronic stress. Um, in the brain, uh, there's a lot of effects, but one that we want to focus on is memory because one of the, the main sites, the, I think the main site of glucocorticoid action in the brain is the hippocampus. And the hippocampus is this structure that is extremely important for long-term memory formation, formation. And, uh, it is it has receptors for glucocorticoids. And so when there is chronic stress, when there's this chronic activation uh, release of glucocorticoids, the hippocampus kind of takes a beating. And there's actually evidence yeah. that chronic stress over time can shrink the hippocampus, can make it smaller than it would otherwise be. And there's different hypotheses about what's going on there. Um, but one is that the hippocampus is one of the only brain regions. Uh, actually, I think, yeah, it is one of the only brain regions that is thought to create new neurons in adult animals. And there's some disagreement about this, whether this actually does occur in humans, but it definitely occurs in mice. And there's, there's some uh, good evidence that, that we adult humans do, in fact, create new neurons, especially in the dentate gyrus, a subregion of the hippocampus. And so one of the ideas is that these glucocorticoids are suppressing the birth of new neurons in the hippocampus. Um, and this can lead to memory problems because of the hippocampus's role in long-term memory. And you see this with trauma. Like there's lots of memory issues uh, reported in cases of trauma. Uh, and, and it, logically, if we're following the same train of logic that we've been talking about this whole episode, it makes sense, right? Memory is about the future, honestly. We're remembering things so that we can actively predict what's going to happen in the future, right? We're trying to create these mental models of, of how we can survive the next 10 days, the next 20 days, the next 10 years, right? And creating these episodic narrative memories of the past allows us to do that. But if we are experiencing this thing that's happening right now, then we don't need to be spending all of these resources remembering all of the details about what's happening. And you see that uh, something that's really, I, I did a lot of this work in my master's degree. I did uh, emotional effects of memory. And there are these fascinating papers that really look at the, the sites on the hippocampus, these glucocorticoids attached to that really shut it down. And something that really stood out to me, one of these papers that I read was, this effect that you see with PTSD, where you have this, this thing that happens with them where a lot of the times they're not able to, to just go back to a memory. They're not able to, to recall it uh, like we would of saying like, you know, I'm, I'm thinking of my, my 28th birthday and what I did and where we went. There's this narrative nature to it. A lot of the events of the trauma are really hard to piece together in a narrative way like that. And instead the memories get triggered by salient things like the spinning of a, of the, the fan looking like helicopter blades or some sound or some smell, right? The, the memories are triggered in these other ways. 
And what it was getting at was that during these trauma responses, the hippocampus was shut down. And so it wasn't actually laying down these, these narrative memories that are usually used for recall, right? We use this narrative episodic thing to be able to go back to these moments in our past, to be able to put them in context of like, okay, where was I when that happened and what was going on? That's what the hippocampus is putting together. It's putting together the place and the time and all of these things. But instead, the memories in these kind of traumatic events are stored in these fragments in different memory systems, smell memory or sight memory or whatever, that then when it gets turned on kind of triggers this cascade, uh, which is just fascinating, right? Yeah. Uh, but it, it all kind of follows this, this same train of, of logic we've been trying to push. And it also kind of makes sense in the frontal lobe too. Uh, do you want to kind of take a stab at that, Andrew? Yeah, I also just want to mention one other thing about memory before we move on, because yeah, what you're it. saying is so important yeah, about yeah. it's not that it shuts down memory per se. It's that it shuts down that that narrative, uh, long term, episodic yes. type of, you know, remembering, remembering specific people, places, events um, in the past so that you can predict the future, form a better model of the future. And that is really the uh, domain of the hippocampus. Right. But then there's this. Yeah structure that's right next to the hippocampus called the amygdala, which we focused on a lot in our anxiety episode. And the amygdala, uh, there's evidence that stress actually enhances the, um, the basically neuroplasticity processes within the amygdala while shutting them down in the hippocampus. And the amygdala has a crucial role in something called fear conditioning. Um, so like when a, a uh, a mouse or a human learns that a specific uh, place predicts that, you know, you're going to experience some kind of pain, like a shock or something. The amygdala is involved in forming that association. And so it makes sense that you would not just, you not just shut down memory if you're in a stressful situation, but you would enhance the type of memory that's going to tell you like, this place bad or like this, this is going to hurt. And um, so, yeah, it's just really interesting, like little um, trade-off that happens with stress. Um, but like you mentioned, this does make sense. This idea that we're, we're shutting down sort of future modeling, uh, episodic future thought. And this is also uh, a domain of the frontal lobe of the prefrontal cortex involved in planning and in kind of abstract reasoning. And, so there's evidence that stress, chronic stress can reduce the um, activity of the frontal lobe and its connection with uh, subcortical regions like the amygdala and uh, hippocampus. I just had I have an interesting note with what you're saying about the amygdala. I, so the work that I was doing with uh, emotional effects of memory was actually looking at associative memory. So remembering that kind of two things are connected, uh, very important for like eyewitness testimony, right? To be able to say like this thing and this thing were both present there and I'm putting them together. Uh, what comes out a lot in these traumatic events is that you have the person doesn't remember the face of the person. They remember what the gun looked like, hmm. right? And that totally makes sense with what you were just saying, where it's just like you have this hyper focus on the things that are really important for survival. You're not thinking about like, oh, what's the color of the wall? And what, did he have a, a coat on or not? Right. Uh, it really kind of painted a, a negative light on the fact that we put so much stock in eyewitness testimony, because a lot of the times it's not great. Right. Because there's this hyper focus on very small elements. Uh, but 
getting to the frontal lobe, like what you're saying, it's, it's the same train of logic. The frontal lobe takes a ton of resources to run. Uh, I mean, this is where we are churning out these really complex simulations of the future. There are these intricate ties to the hippocampus, right? That's the whole idea, is that we're using everything that happened before to be able to create these wonderful simulations of the future and to plan for, I mean, we as humans can plan, what, 10 years, 15 years, 50 years in the future. Uh, and we can kind of put all of these building blocks together. But try doing that when you feel like you're about to die, right? It's, it's just, it's not there. You don't have the capacity. Your, your brain has decided like, I'm not going to send resources to that part of the brain. And think about the implications of that, right? If you are chronically stressed, if you're stressed all the time, your future thinking is affected. And this is really prevalent in people with depression. And, and like depression is something that's usually marked in a, in a large proportion of people with major depressive disorder with really elevated levels of these glucocorticoids, that they're constantly in this stress response. And it makes sense. It, it damages a lot of the, the memory processes. It makes it really hard to, to think about the future, to have hope for the future, right? Because those parts of our brain that are supposed to be doing that are being told to be downregulated. And this, this sounds very fatalistic, and I, I get that. Uh, and I don't want to paint this picture mm -mm. like you're doomed, right? Like you're stressed, you're depressed, you're anxious, whatever. You're just on this, this downward trajectory to hell, right? Because that's, that's really this, this picture that we've been painting this entire time. But <laughs> there is so much evidence that there, is, there, are person, there are individual differences in stress response. You can give the same people the same stressor and you have some people that fare really well and you have some people that don't. And that's really, I think, what we want to spend the next like 10, 15 minutes really talking about is what are those modulatory effects that really allow us to put these things into a different perspective, to, to use our power of thought to turn these responses down, to have insight into the fact that like, okay, I'm, I'm elevated. I'm, I'm jacked up. My body's telling me that it thinks that it's going to die. What kind of things are we able to use to get our body out of that? That don't involve English. That don't involve us just telling our body, just calm down because it doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. Although <laughs> I, we will get to some of these more cognitive strategies that do involve a bit of reframing or, or rethinking, uh, this stressful event and your role in that. But yeah, mm -hmm. just uh, on a, I mean, one thing I definitely want to mention uh, is uh, the, the idea of like outlet, like having an outlet for stress and the way that, um, I mean, I think about this exercise is an amazing outlet for stress and it, studies do show that exercise uh, can reduce stress, does reduce stress, regular exercise, especially aerobic activity, um, running, but also, uh, like weightlifting, things like that. And why would that be? Why would there be this, um, effect of exercise helping to reduce, uh, like feelings of stress and, and chronic stress? Because as we've been talking about throughout this whole episode, and this is something that Sapolsky mentions that stress is about getting your body to do something. You want to go out and, and take action in some way. <laughs> And when you're stressed about, you know, an upcoming uh, deadline or a financial issue or something like that, and you're just sitting, you know, stewing in that, uh, your body is doing, again, this very like nonspecific stress response. And yet 
there's no way for that stress response to be, you know, quote unquote, expressed. Like we're not able to get it out of us. We don't have an outlet for stress. And so exercise provides this kind of uh, outlet for our, our modern, you know, fairly sedentary world for us to actually get that stress out of our system through running or rock climbing or especially sorry, I'm going on and on, but especially something no, that good, you like to do and that you are doing yes. voluntarily. So you don't want to be forced into doing exercise. You want to be doing this voluntarily uh, because there's actually some evidence that if you, I mean, this is a weird thing because I don't know who's being forced <laughs> into exercise other than, I don't know, children, maybe something like that. But if you're forcing <laughs> someone into it, uh, that can be more stressful than uh and, and actually add to your stress, but doing something voluntarily, especially something you enjoy, uh, exercise is a great way to manage stress. Sapolsky has this, this really cool, um, picture that he paints, uh, of this idea. Uh, there's, I think I mentioned the gazelle earlier, the gazelle, I believe it's the gazelle. Uh, the main predator is the cheetah and the gazelle cannot outrun the cheetah. Uh, and so what the gazelle does is it freezes. It gets really, really down, small and tight, and all of its muscles get really, 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 really tense. And what it does is after the cheetah goes away, that gazelle then just runs around like crazy. And what's happening in that situation is that it's using all of that pent up energy, right? It was in the stress response. The body was saying, release all this energy, get ready to just run in case that cheetah comes. Cheetah never came, but then it still runs anyway. And after it's done running, there's now this signal, right? It didn't talk to its body. It said, I'm going to, I'm going to run, I'm going to run. And then when I stop running, that stopping running is kind of the signal to the body that it's over, Right. That now it's, we're done. The stress is over. It's gone. Let's now go back to relax and recuperate. Uh, and something that I really like that Andrew highlighted is that this can be lots of different stuff. And they've shown this with rats, right? Uh, they shock rats. And if they shock a rat and then don't give it an outlet, the rat gets an ulcer. But if they shock the rat and then they let it go gnaw on a piece of wood and chew the crap out of it, it doesn't get an ulcer. If they let the rat go have sex, it doesn't get an ulcer. If they let the rat go and run on a running wheel, it doesn't get an ulcer, right? There are all of these different ways and it's it, it's about being creative, right? How can I, all of this energy is just released in our body, right? We have all of it flowing through our veins. Now, how do we express that energy? You can express it creatively. You can express it through exercise, whatever. You just want to use energy and then give your body the signal that, okay, it's done now. Yeah. So that can be unintuitive, right? If you, you're feeling exhausted from stress, like you don't necessarily want to go out and take a run all the time, but just remember, like there's also just with exercise, there is release of other neurotransmitters that make you feel good. There's the endorphin and endocannabinoid release that are just involved in feeling good in the pleasure and, and good feelings. Um, but let's get to, we can talk about some of these more cognitive strategies because exercise is kind of this baseline one. Um, and maybe one we should mention is sleep. I know, uh, you know, we all <laughs> sometimes struggle to get enough sleep, but, uh, sleep is, uh, yeah, before we move on to the cognitive one, sleep is this very like <laughs> physiological process that we mentioned in the anxiety episode is so important for, um, just, uh, resetting your brain, cleaning out these, uh, the, the brain of these metabolic waste products, but also um, reconfiguring your schemas, your memories about yourself and the world. 
And um, so sleep is, is a great one to keep in mind. Um, I know we always tend to feel better after a good night's sleep, even if you're really stressed the day before. Um, and, uh, and then, okay. And then let's get into predictability, right? Cause predictability yeah. of when a stressor is going to occur, how long it's going to go on for, this can be a really important, uh, component of managing stress. So you want to maybe take a jab at that. So this other big one is, is predictability, right? And there's a lot of stuff again, that, that came from the rat research because so much of this is a conserved kind of. Uh, mechanism across all of the different mammals. And so a lot of the studies that we've done, we've done in rats, and then they've held up really well in humans. And they showed that these rats, if you shock a rat over and over and over again, and it has no idea when that rat, when that shock is coming, it's going to just be freaked out all the time. That stress response is going to be on just continuously. It's going to be wreaking havoc. And those rats end up getting ulcers. But now you take another rat that's getting the exact same shocks as, as the first one, but this rat has a tone that comes on five seconds before the shock happens, right? That rat doesn't end up getting an ulcer. And a lot of the idea behind this is that it's now had time to prepare for the stress that's coming, right? And there's a lot of kind of practical applications for this in, in human life, right? Uh, if I know that I'm going to lose my job in two months, I have two months to prepare for all of that. But if all of a sudden I'm just told one day, like, uh, I'm sorry, we just lost all of our funding. This this whole business is shutting down and you, now you're jobless. Have fun feeding your family. That's a completely different type of stress, right? Now, that's a lot not a lot more like long-term and abstract, but this happens just with, with little things in our day too, that uh, there's this great thing that, that comes from like stoicism that you can like sit down in the morning and do this meditation where you think like, okay, what are all of the things that could go wrong today? And a lot of people think that's very negative, but uh, the idea behind it is that you're thinking through strategies of like, okay, what if someone cuts me off in traffic? Am I going to lose my mind or am I going to have a strategy prepared because I already expected that that was going to happen? And then all of a sudden those stressful events have kind of lost their edge, right? Yeah. yeah and there's uh, like something important to mention, like, uh, when you are when you're doing that that stoic kind of meditation thinking through everything that could go wrong all the stressful situations the key to that to not getting overwhelmed and not uh turning it into like this negative oh everything's going to go terribly is like you just said thinking through those strategies what can i do yeah. what control do i have over this situation and that is the the last big piece of stress management we want to talk about is control and interestingly, so we talked about this in our anxiety episode. We've talked about this multiple times on this show, this idea that the feeling of control, the the like psychological feeling that you are actually in control over some aspect of the stressor, even if it's not objectively true, is associated with better uh, psychological outcomes less of these, uh, this chronic stress that we're talking about. So like when we talked about, we talked about learned helplessness in the last episode, we talked about the idea that when stressors just come completely uncontrollably and you have no way of actually, uh, avoiding them, taking control of them, managing them in any way, it leads to this state called learned helplessness, which is just basically even when you, so when you exit that situation and when you go into the world and there are actually controllable stressors, things that you can do to overcome them, 
you're going to be less likely to actually try to overcome those stressors. So that's, that's where this feeling of control comes in. Um, so that can sound really abstract, but one way that we can, uh, gain some, uh, feeling of control over stressors in our lives is to do the kind of, uh, exercise that Taylor was just mentioning, thinking about what could go wrong, but then what could I do about it? And then just generally having this growth mindset, this idea that when setbacks occur, when big or small stressors occur in your life, what is it that you can do to move forward from that point? There's nothing you can do to change the past, all right? You don't have control over that, but what you do have control over is your response to it. And that's another stoic idea that you have control over your own response to this uh, situation, whatever it may be. I think something that's really standing out to me is we've talked about this, this kind of spiral that you can get in with a lot of this stuff that feels inescapable in a lot of aspects, right? Like what you're talking about with learned helplessness, that's, that's a hallmark of it, right? You end up in a situation where you actually can do something to control the outcome and you don't even try because you've learned from all of these other instances that everything that you did try to do failed. And now you just have this strategy going forward that it's, it's not even worth it to put any effort in. And one of the things that I think like I mentioned, can sound really fatalistic was talking about how the frontal lobe is downregulated and how we're not using our hippocampus really well. So we're not forming memories or whatever. That's happening in the absence of any type of like executive action, right? I can, I can turn my frontal lobe back on. I can sit there and say, you know what, I'm going to sit here for a minute and I'm going to think about the future. And there's this really interesting stuff that actually comes from like the addiction literature that they show that people with addiction have really dysregulated frontal lobes. They're not using them very well. And it makes sense. It's, it's comorbid with depression, with anxiety, with all of these kind of things. But they've shown that just getting people to think about the future, just bringing them in and just say, I want you to just imagine the, the, the future and imagine something positive happening and going through this mental simulation, just doing that turns on the frontal lobe. And the more you do that, the more you engage these neuroplastic mechanisms to start reversing this cycle, right? But it takes this and it, it feels like friction. This is something we talked about in our neuroplasticity episode is that we can change our brain. We can, we can exit this cycle. We can do these things to turn our frontal lobe back on, to start using our, our hippocampus, to downregulate our amygdala that's just hooked on all this fear stuff. But it takes a lot of effort, right? Try sitting down and meditating for like 30 minutes. It's really freaking hard to sit there and just stay engaged. But the thing is, is that it takes this repeated effort every day of reminding yourself this value of your future health, Right. These things are going to make it so that when I'm 20 years older, when I'm 30 years older, I'm going to be less at risk for these things that are going to make my life even more stressful. If I can just spend 10 minutes right now engaging my frontal lobe, thinking about who I am, thinking about what I want, thinking about how I can overcome these things in my lives. And the other thing too, is that when you start to do these things, you actually start to develop these, these shorter kind of approachable goals that you can accomplish. Because the, the big antidote to a loss of control is to prove to yourself that you do have control. Find those things that are little things that you can accomplish every day and remind yourself, like, I did that. That was me. I was in control of that. And the more you can convince yourself that you have agency, that you're actually affecting your world, the more you can engage those mechanisms. Yeah. And that's such a great point. There's two things I want to mention. The 
uh, what you're just saying, making small steps, making progress toward your goal. Yeah. A lot of people get stuck in feeling like I don't have motivation. I don't have the ability to, I don't feel like I, I want to do that or I can do that. I just feel stuck here. And when this quote I came across recently um, from a, a kind of self-help guy, um, Brendan Burchard, he said, progress, it was something like progress drives motivation and vice versa. So to get that sense of motivation, completing those goals, even if they're small steps, is really important for gaining that sense of motivation to continue moving forward in the future. And that's just kind of the, another aspect of what Taylor was talking about. But another thing I wanted to say is with learned helplessness, in humans, it comes about when we think problems are permanent, pervasive, and personal. They're like the three deadly peas. Uh, so permanent, mean this is going to go on forever. Pervasive, this is just, this problem is ruining everything in my life and there's nothing that's untouched by it. And personal, it is something to do with me as a person. And that is like this, this dark triad, this evil trifecta that will set you into this learned helplessness. And the truth is, most problems are not permanent, pervasive, and personal. And it takes this shift in mindset of seeing what can I do? And sometimes that uh, mindset is, is hard to access. And sometimes it's important to also look back on the progress you have made rather than just how far you have to go. So remembering that these problems are not personal, not permanent, and not pervasive can be a powerful antidote to falling into this kind of learned helplessness um, and managing stress associated with setbacks in life. No, that was that was beautiful. <laughs> the three P's. Uh, and and it, it makes sense. I've been there. Like, I, I've been in the trenches a lot. And I know what a lack of motivation feels like. I know what constant failure feels like. And it just, you, you wake up exhausted. You don't want to do anything. You don't want to engage. And it's, it's been those moments in my life where I start to see what it is that I can actually do. And a lot of it starts with like health stuff. Honestly, it's like, I can exercise. Uh, and, and like Andrew said earlier, I, you know, I went to the physical therapist. I have this really bad back pain and shoulder pain from an accident that I got on my snowboard. And the physical therapist wanted me to do these stretches and they were freaking boring and I didn't do them right because I didn't enjoy what I was doing. I, I like when I did them, I felt better, but it just felt like a chore. It felt like a task. Right. Um, and then I found this, like this gentle form of martial art that I do. That's really enjoyable. It challenges me. It's something that I want to get better at. Uh, and it's something that then it's like, it's something that I enjoy jumping into for like 30 minutes in the evening. And you see, like after that, I think one thing that's really, really helped me is that a lot of the times I got into this fatalistic mindset of saying like, you know, I am trying things and things are just still crap, right? My back still feels like shit, right? Even though I'm, even though I'm exercising, what really helped me was when I changed my mindset to stop thinking so long-term, like what I'm doing is not fixing everything, but every small step that I take does feel better. And if you can really hone in on the fact that like, I just exercise and right now I feel great. That little bit is what you now need to use as your motivation going back in to do it again. And the more you do it and the more you engage, you actually do end up getting closer and closer to that ultimate goal that you have. That feels just so freaking daunting because it's so on the horizon. 
but it's the small stuff. And and Andrew said, even if it's the, if it's the small stuff, I would challenge you make it the small stuff. Yeah. Yeah. There's so many good examples of that. I love that what you said. Um, and you know, I think a lot of what we're talking about here is uh, strategies for not only managing stress, but for kind of like moving forward in your life. And I think uh, one thing I want to mention to people is if you want to kind of get deeper into some of the stuff we're talking about and, and really see it on a more personal level, how it affects us in our lives, um, join our Patreon because we're going to be right after this going into doing a Patreon only episode and it'll be the first one. And so if you join our Patreon, you will get access to that episode and it's just going to be a great way to kind of hang out and discuss these issues in a wider context of a lot of the stuff we've talked about on the show regarding, you know, neuroscience, but also, uh, you know, kind of mental health and, and well-being and a lot of these things that we have touched on and seeing it in a more, um, maybe more actionable, but more personal lens. So I really encourage you to check out our Patreon, go to, you know, check out patreon.com slash the social brain. And there's definitely going to be a link in the description wherever you're watching this video or listening to this podcast. Yeah, and I just wanted to, again, thank everybody for continuing to, to tune in. It's, it's so great to see the big audience that enjoys kind of getting insights from this stuff that we're doing. Uh, and it encourages us to keep doing this. I mean, this is number 33 that we've done. We've been at this for like a year and a half now. Uh, and we want to keep kind of plowing forward. So uh, thank you. And we will see you for the next one.